Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to finish a section we started last week. Uh, Last week, I I don't know if you noticed or not, I didn't have a voice. Some people are like, I just thought you were very quiet. And I was, because I couldn't talk. This week, I can't raise my arms. So it's going to be a very weird day. Like, there's someone in this church who told me to exercise, do as much as you can at one time and get it over with. And so I lifted weights yesterday and my arms just woke up. My arms woke up and I'm just, they're so sore. So if you're old like me, don't lift weights, just run. Matthew chapter 15. We looked last week at a very important principle about the difference between the gospel and religion. And I want to continue to pick up on that theme in the midst of this story that Jesus is in the midst of uh, discussing the Pharisees. And uh, when we look at this idea of gospel and religion, I think most people think there's two ways to live your life. You can be very, very good and obey God and obey his will, and those people go where? Heaven. Or you can be very, very bad and just reject God or just do your own thing, and those people go to hell, right? Like, this is just the general MO that most of us in our culture have, maybe we don't believe it, but understand and have experienced and believed. And ultimately, this is true, but I think there's a way that we need to dig down a little bit deeper, because I think there's actually two ways to reject God. There's not just one way to reject God by doing your own thing and being very, very bad, but there is another way to reject God by being very, very good. That sounds very crazy. That sounds very ironical. Like, very, like, what are you talking about? How can I reject God by being very, very good? You reject God by being very, very good because in your goodness, you build your own righteousness, your own justification. Everything becomes about you. Your relationship with God is based on your ability to perform and to be good. Moreover, if you can obey and you think you're good and you keep obeying and you build your righteousness on yourself, guess who you are not trusting and relying on? You are actually rejecting God in your goodness. You're rejecting Jesus by being obedient. And this passage this morning in Matthew 15 illustrates this reality. That as we saw last week, if you were not here, there's a story that Jesus in the midst of with the Pharisees because Jesus' disciples were eating food, having lunch, without washing their hands. And the disciples were like, you know what, we're just going to go eat. And then all the Pharisees were like, Jesus, um, how come you let your disciples eat without washing your hands? And we begin to look at the idea of the traditions of the elders and how they used to make rules around rules around rules. 
And ultimately, all of those rules were the Jewish people being very, very good. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, they honor me with their lips. They do the right actions. They say the right things, but their hearts are far from me. And so one of the greatest enemies to the gospel is not being very, very bad and living adulterous and living evil lives. One of the greatest enemies to the gospel is goodness. It is obedience. It is traditions. And I think it's very important for the church, important for us, to do business with our traditions, with our own religion, with our own self-righteousness. And I would just say this, not to be mean or make a strong point at the very beginning, but it's going to be this. If you don't think you're self-righteous, you got a major self-righteous problem. The reality is, is that all of us, deep down, build our righteousness, our rightness, on things that we hold to be central to our life. And what the gospel does over time is frees you from those actions, from those attitudes of self-righteousness. And it is my prayer since like 2009 when this doctrine began to really permeate me that our church would not become a religious club that we not be a people who just show up because it's the right thing to do. We don't become a people who are like, we won't do that. We won't hang out with people who do this. But that the gospel would actually free us from our self-righteousness, free us from our traditions to be people who genuinely love God by loving others. Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20 <clears throat> say this. Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said to the crowds, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. The disciples came to Jesus and asked him, do you know what the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them or let them be. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Jesus, explain this to us. Explain this parable. And Jesus says, are you still so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Father, as we come to you this morning... We ask that you will, by the power of your spirit, continue to free us from our self-righteousness. The things that we hold that are not foundational and not core to the Christian faith, but things that are secondary, that we build our life on, I pray that you'll help us continue to be free from those by the power of your spirit. And that will only happen, spirit, as you show us the beauty of Jesus, the gift that we have in him the joy that he provides, the security he brings. So we ask that you'll do this 
And in your name we pray. Amen. Verse 10, Jesus begins by drawing the crowds. In verses 1 through 9, he's already addressed the leaders, the traditions of the elders. They came to him, and he told them, you are people who honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Now Jesus is going to go to the crowds. They've kind of stayed in the background. They've listened, waiting for Jesus probably to do more miracles or trying to find out what's going to happen. And he says to the crowds, listen and understand. Listen and understand. This idea here is like, is your parent, don't just hear me, right? I'm glad that that went in one ear and not the other. But Jesus is like, don't just hear what I'm saying. But process. Begin to think through the implications of what I am actually telling you. Because these implications are massive. These implications change everything about the way of life that you are normally used to. And this is the distinctive response of all true disciples. They listen to what Jesus has to say and they begin to process the implications. What is true because of what Jesus has come to do? And it's not an issue of how you feel about Jesus. It's an issue of who Jesus actually is. This is not to deny our emotions, our feelings. You know, like, we're not like, there are some people out there that have this famous statement, facts don't care about your feelings, right? You ever heard that? And I want to be like, no, we do care about your feelings. You should care about your feelings, But feelings don't determine what is true. What is true is not always how you feel about it. Maybe you feel good about that and not about that, but that doesn't determine the validity of what it is. Moreover, what is true is not always what you've been taught your whole life. If you haven't figured that out yet, you haven't lived very long. But the reality is just because someone taught you doesn't mean that's absolute truth. And the question is, are you humble enough to admit that oftentimes your feelings determine what is true, your traditions teach you what is true, and what you keep doing you want to be true because you don't want to ever believe that you were wrong in the past. And what Jesus is saying is that is not listening and understanding. Understanding is saying, you know what, I did get very emotional about this belief, and maybe it's not absolutely right. It is coming to be like, you know what, I did grow up this way, and my parents taught it to me, and I don't know if it's absolutely true. I tell my kids all the time, you don't have to believe what I have to believe. In fact, I want you to start thinking about what you believe and to challenge it. I like challenge. I'll prove that you're wrong, but I'm right. And that's a joke, okay? Because that goes back to number three. Some of us just don't change because we don't ever want to think that we were wrong in the past. So Jesus says, listen and understand. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be unwilling to come back and analyze what is actually true. And what Jesus wants them to understand is this, is that what goes into your mouth does not defile you. We looked at last week how defilement was contagious. If your hands were defiled, it went to your food because you touched your food. Then it went to your mouth because that's where it went into your mouth. And then your whole body became defiled. And this is the process that the Jewish people understood. And it was a Jewish tradition. In fact, there is... No place in the Old Testament where this is actually even true. 
There are, uh, on the next slide, two passages in the Old Testament that talk about of the 129 times that this word defiled is used in, in the book of Leviticus, which is where all the, def, you know, clean, unclean, defile, purity laws come from, there are two places about food. And I, do, I just want you to notice these. In Leviticus 11.9, if an animal that you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean until evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass must wash their clothes, and they'll be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up the carcass must wash their clothes, or they'll be unclean till evening. So the only thing about eating here has nothing to do with washing your hands. It has everything if you've touched the dead animal. Or Leviticus 17, 15. Anyone, whether native-born or foreigner, who eats anything found dead or torn by wild animals must wash their clothes, bathe with water, or they'll be unclean till evening. Then they will be unclean, but if they do not wash or clothe, they will be held responsible. If you notice, these are the only two rituals in the Old Testament that deal with the purity of anything to do with eating. Both have to do with touching dead animals. Nothing to do with washing your hands before you eat any meal. Okay, and I know this is just so weird. Have any of you touched a dead animal this week? Probably not. I don't even want to touch a dead animal. And yet this is normal life back then. I shouldn't say normal life, but fairly common normal life is just to regularly be interacting with dead animals. And what this just shows is how the religious system, the tradition of the elders... The religious elite over the centuries began to just create more and more laws. And though well-intentioned, they went far beyond the law. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit, but I just want to stop and pause right here and just say this. What they did is they built fences around the law. And what that meant is, I think I did this illustration last week, that if you want to break the law and you build up five fences, you've got to bulldoze five fences to actually get to the law before you break it. Isn't that a good thing? It is until you build your life on it and you command other people to do it. But Jesus is not done just saying the exact opposite, going against all the traditions of the elders, that it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. Jesus is going to go even further, and there's a parallel passage in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, on the next slide, it says this, in the midst of this discussion, in Mark's account, Jesus says, it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach, then out of the body. And in saying this, church, look at this phrase, Jesus declared all foods clean. I don't know if you've ever heard of the kosher laws. Um, Down here, it's not so common, but up in New York where I grew up, there was always a kosher deli and a kosher section for, we have a pretty big Jewish population in Syracuse, New York, and all the major restaurants, no, grocery stores, like Wegmans. You ever you've gone to Wegmans? That's like from New York. Right? And they'd have this huge kosher section. If you're not familiar with the Jewish laws and dietary laws, they had foods they could eat and they couldn't eat. Okay, they can't go to Chili's and enjoy baby back ribs, unfortunately for them. But they can enjoy chicken. They can enjoy other food, clean food. And there is this law for Jewish people that there was clean animals and unclean animals. And Jesus now is declaring that all foods are clean. 
Now, I don't know when people say things that you just get a twitch about, like they just said that and you're just like, did that really just happen? And I feel like this is what's happening with the, the tradition of the elders. Hey, Jesus says, all food is clean. And they're just starting twitching, like what? You can't, that's not right. That goes against everything that we have been teaching. That goes against hundreds and hundreds of years of traditions. That goes even against the actual law of Moses. However, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What Jesus is saying is, I didn't come and say the law was no good and I need to break it and destroy it. What I did is I came and I am the fulfillment of the law, which means now all food is kosher, which means now all the laws are done. Everything now has been subsumed up into me. And this is like a worldview shift for us, I don't even know how to like make it a worldview shift for us other than to say the purpose of life is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like if communism came in tomorrow and all of us lost all of our freedoms, this would be the type of worldview shift that Jesus is bringing on the Jewish people. To say that the law that Moses had and God gave to Moses that period of time has now come to an end. The law was not supposed to be eternal. It's not supposed to be forever. But when I come, that law and its purpose now is over. And it took a long time for even Jesus' disciples to figure this out. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, there's a story of Peter... Peter. He's just everywhere, right? He's walking on water last week. He's going to ask crazy questions this week. And now in Acts chapter 10 and 11, he is uh, doing his midday prayers at noon up on his flat roof. And while people are making lunch for him down below, he's up praying. And while he's up praying, he sees this vision from God with a sheet come down with all of these unclean animals on it. And God says to him, rise and eat. And Peter twitches, and he has another vision. And guess what the vision is? It's the same thing, and he twitches again, and a third vision. And he's like, man, this is getting crazy. Three times in a row I've had the same vision of all these animals coming down that are unclean, and God is telling me to eat them. Meanwhile, God is preparing the heart of a Roman leader, Roman general named Cornel Cornelius. Oh my gosh, he just lost his name. Is that his name? Yes, it is Cornelius. All of a sudden, I just went Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I'm like, is this right? I got really confused for a moment. Anyways, Cornelius, the Roman general, who is a Gentile, God-fearing Gentile, has this vision that God gives him to go send for Peter. And so Peter and Cornelius come together, and they finally realize what God is saying is now we can, you as a Gentile can be a part of this gospel salvation that goes to the ends of the earth. And he's telling Peter now that he can be with the Gentile, he can actually eat the Gentile food. Jews can become Gentiles, and Gentiles can become Jews. It's almost as if Peter or Paul was right when it says the two become one. God is making one new humanity out of the Jews and the Gentiles. But notice, this would be like a great story, right? That sounds amazing. That sounds great. The gospel is moving forward, and the Jews can go to Chili's now and have a great time. Like, great. However, on the next slide, when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem... 
I think it's on the next slide. When Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. What did they criticize Peter about? You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. Can you imagine like having this great experience and then all the believers come and be like, Peter, you just ate with a Gentile. And Peter explained exactly what has happened. I was in the town of Joppa, and while I was praying, I went into a trance. I saw a vision, and something like a large sheet let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles, birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to the heavens. A few verses later, it says this, And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And when the others heard this, they understood they processed the information and they stopped objecting and began to praise God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Jesus' teaching here is revolutionary for the Jewish mindset. And it becomes revolutionary for the whole world because now the good news of the gospel is not being contained in Israel, but going to the nations, to the Gentiles. His proclamation was shattering. And it goes back to this reality that what goes in is not what defiles you, but what comes out. So you're free to eat any food. You're free to eat, drink any drink. That is not defiling you. What is actually defiling you is the things that come out of your heart. Jesus already said this a few chapters earlier. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Your words reflect your heart. Your actions reflect your heart. And those words and those actions, they are what produce defilements. So you may be asking yourself, well, what about me? Am I a Pharisee? Is it bad for me to follow rules that the, that, like the Pharisees had? And I want to make this very clear. I did it last week, but I want to continue to make it very clear. That on the next slide, number one, it is not evil to build fences around rules, around commands, to make sure that you don't violate them. In fact, there may be areas where that may be helpful for you during a season. So, I don't, if you're struggling with pornography, What's going to save you is not getting rid of your computer. It's not going to get rid of your phone. It's not going to get rid of the TV. But you know what? Maybe you better put up like five fences so that if you break one, you're still four away from it if you're struggling with it. If you're struggling with alcohol, maybe you should put up five fences so that you don't break through. If you're struggling with any area in your life, it might be wise and to have biblical wisdom to set up a fence. And what I want to say is to have fences does not make you a Pharisee. It makes you smart. What's the problem? It becomes a Pharisaical tradition when it 
becomes something that you command others to uphold, and you begin to judge others based on your rules. It becomes evil when, you know what? Those people are like that. They're, I don't even know if they're Christians. And they're the bad Christians. As opposed to saying, you know what? They are free in Christ. They do have biblical freedom. They can do that. I don't think it's smart. I don't think it's wise. But you know what? I'm not going to judge you. We are on the same team, Jesus. And we're going to move forward together. Is it your way or the highway? Or is it coming back to what the Bible actually addresses? And I think so many times we build fences and we keep people out unless they have the same fences that we have. When you require others and judge them based on your rules, your traditions, Jesus will say you care more about the outside of the cup and the inside of your cup is dirty. So he addresses the crowd, he says, listen and understand. Take in the implications of what I'm actually doing in my life and in my ministry, that I came to end the law. I came to actually bring fulfillment to it. And in all of that, you need to realize that what defiles you is your actual evil heart, not the activities or the rules that you don't keep. But Jesus is not done, because now the disciples, he went to the leaders, he went to the crowds, and now the disciples. Because after he got done talking to the crowds, it says this, do you not know the Pharisees were offended when you said this? It's almost like you could see Peter walk up to Jesus, you know, whisper, did you, did you know that they're really mad at you? Of course he knew that. But there's this conflict, and the Jewish even crowds, and now the disciples are confused that you offended these people. And so Jesus goes on to tell them a parable. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus says this, or sorry, verse 13, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. He uses a, a, an analogy as what Peter will say in a minute, a parable about plants, God having a garden. And this is like an Old Testament metaphor where Israel is compared to a plant, compared to a garden. One particular place is in Jeremiah chapter 45, where God told a discouraged Baruch, if you don't know who Baruch is, he's uh, Jeremiah's helper, uh, compatriot. And in Jeremiah chapter 45, he told Baruch this, I will uproot what I have planted. And the idea here is that God is going to uproot Israel. God is going to take the plant, the garden that he has, his nation of Israel, and he's just going to uproot them. He's going to not have part with them. He's going to send them to the nations. Because of their apostasy, God will uproot the nations. God will come and destroy these people. Their garden will no longer be there. And this is like a reference back to the parable of the weeds that we looked at relatively recently in the book of Matthew, where the weeds and the, uh, the tares and the wheat grow up together, and, and the disciples say, should we pull out all the wheat and the weeds and separate them? And Jesus says what? No, leave the wheat and the tares together. 
And one day when I come back, I will separate them. And what God is actually just telling the disciples right now, Jesus is telling disciples, is that those Jewish people, I've already told you they're fulfilling Isaiah, but now they're actually being fulfilled in Jeremiah chapter 45, that they're being uprooted. They're being sent out from my people. They're not really my people. But then Jesus uses a second analogy, not of just a garden, but of a, of a guide, of a, of a guide, blind guide leading blind people. And this idea of being about a guide, I think, goes back to the Old Testament as well, where Jesus calls Israel to be a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blinds. And now in a play on words, Jesus says here that these religious leaders think of themselves as guides for the blinds. They think they're helping the Jewish people who they don't know the law, and now they have to wash their hands 15 times a day. That is making their eyes become open. And Jesus says, actually, it's just the blinds leading the blinds. It is the religious leaders who don't understand the nature of the heart and what defilement is. They don't understand what I have come to do and who I am. They're actually leading these people, and they're just going to fall into a pit whether that pit is just danger or destruction or the ultimate pit hell, there's a lot of debate on what the pit is. But let's just say the pit's not good. The blind are leading the blinds. And so Peter hears this analogy, these parables, and he says, explain it to us. And Jesus says in the NIV, are you still so dull? My mom's not here. She might be listening. When I was in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher sent me to like get it tested, and they tested me, came back, and they, the actual label was called dull. I was in kindergarten and got labeled dull. And you're like, nothing's changed, right? <laughs> my mom cried. My dad, she called my dad. My, you know, they just called our son. And my dad says, well, maybe he is. <laughs> Long story short, they didn't know I was colorblind. So I was dull because I couldn't figure out colors, and all my color by number were all wrong, and green was orange, and red was blue, and it was just some big mess. But, so I'm still dull, but I'm not technically dull. But the idea here is that Jesus is like, Peter, are you still not understanding? In fact, uh, in verse 10, it says, listen and understand, he said to the crowds. And now Jesus used that same Greek word of understand and just puts a little Greek alpha letter in front of it, A, which means not understand. Are you not understanding? Are you not understanding the implications of what I'm saying? Let me dig a little bit deeper for you, Peter. Let me help you understand a little bit more. And Jesus repeats once again what he told them. Don't you see in verse 18 that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? What you have for lunch today, hopefully by tomorrow, will be out of your body. That's the way that food and the body that God has designed works. But the things that come out of the person's mouth come from the heart, and those are what defile them. 
Peter, you need to have a mindset shift on what defilement is, where it comes from. Have a major on the majors, not focus on the minors. True defilement comes from a person's heart. If the heart is evil, it produces evil. If the heart is good, it produces good. Because out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, thought, false testimony, slander. Jesus is basically just walking through the Ten Commandments. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands do not defile them. I began thinking, like, what are, what's today's washing hands traditions? What are today's Christian traditions that would be akin to washing hands? I might make some of you a little bit mad, but it'll be okay. We're friends. Sometimes, sometimes, Christians think that if you vote blue, you could never be a Christian. Because if you were a Christian, you'd be part of the Republican Party. And so if you vote blue, that's washing hands. I'll have nothing to do with you. You're not right. You're impure. How could you do that? But isn't it possible, isn't, you may say no, but I think it's possible that no matter what side of the aisle you're on in politics, you could be a firm follower in Jesus, yes or no? So why make a fence that keeps your brother and sister out because they vote different than you? You know why? Because political analogies and policy is your ideological sentence of your heart, that that is what drives you. Like if that is what gets you so mad (laughs) that a Christian would vote blue or a Christian would vote red, that's your self-righteousness. That is not having the gospel be the center of your heart. It's becoming less and less of an issue, but I still think there are issues of like dress. And there's issues of alcohol. And there's issues of food. Like these still exist today. And the Bible does not, in a sense, it there are, like, does that make sense? Don't get drunk. All agree with me? We should all dress modestly. Agree with me? We should all go to movies. Agree? I'm kidding. But to build fences in your own life on those things is good, but to have a test of fellowship and to actually begin to live your life through that lens is very much being a tradition of the elders, and you are making other people wash hands. And the beauty of Christianity, to me, is that we can actually be people who truly believe in the gospel and yet be truly loving and accepting of others despite their belief systems and their way of life's way of life. Like the beauty of Christianity is that we can actually hold true what we believe deeply and still love deeply people who are far different than us. Like, what comes on the TV that makes you twitch? Like, what comes on the TV that you just like, oh, that drives me nuts, I can't listen to this anymore? 
I think we need to come to a place where we can actually believe deeply, but love deeply. One way is this, as we close, there's three distinctives of Christianity that make Christianity extremely unique. That's a paradox if you're a literary person, I'm sorry. Just unique, okay? And one is the distinctive creation of, of creation. All other religions hold out hope for a future afterlife outside of this earth. It's to escape this earth. It's to get somewhere else. Uh, a second distinctive of Christianity is that Jesus actually enters as God into his own story. No other religion has God entering into his story as the Savior, as the Redeemer, as the hero, as taking on humanity. And the third uniqueness of Christianity is the doctrine of grace. The doctrine of grace says that it's not how much right you do compared to how much bad you do to determine how much you'll spend eternity in heaven or in a bad place or in an intermediary place to get you to the good place. It's these very distinctives, and particularly the doctrine of grace, that when you take them into the center of your being, into your heart, when you take the grace of God into your heart, it will turn us as a church into the very thing the world so desperately needs. Agents of peace and reconciliation. A non-anxious presence. How does that take place? The Bible, with the doctrine of grace, says you're not saved by your performance. Because in religion, you are. And if you're saved by your performance, that creates a very slippery slope. If you believe that you're saved because you're performing, you have to elevate yourself and make yourself superior to other people. Because if you are saved, no matter what your belief system is, that you are believing it and you're saved, it's because you're believing something or doing something that other people aren't. And that leads to superiority. That creates the slippery slope. Self-righteousness, superiority, actually ultimately leads to oppression. But I want you to know that in our culture, the alternative to the gospel is secularism. Just as a general caveat, there's different types of secularism. But just as much as the culture says that Christianity is oppressive... If we're actually honest, secular people are just as oppressive as the Christians are, or claim to be. They're every bit as self-righteous as the Pharisees, as the moralists. The secularists will say, oh, you see, I'm the enlightened person. You're the primitive religious people. You're the reasons for the problems of this world. You have not moved on from your sexual ethic. You have not moved on to what we believe today. And so we are the unenlightened, while the secularists are the enlightened. And of course, the moralists are going to look at the secularists and say, you dirty secularists, you're the problem with the world. You're out there living as if nothing matters, and creating all types of new ways of living, and new things, and new ideas. And what ends up happening is each group looks down on, with their, down on their nose at the other group. But it's interesting, I believe the gospel is the only faith system that leads you to expect that people who don't believe like you 
will actually be better than you. What do you mean? Because the gospel says you're not saved because you're wise, you're not smart, you're not saved because you're good, you're not saved because you're virtuous, you're not saved because you're performing the truth. The gospel says none of those things. You're saved simply because Jesus performs all the truth. You can't get salvation unless you admit that you are not any better than anybody else, that you are a sinner in need of the same grace that everyone else needs, secularist or moralist. And the gospel leads you to expect that people who don't agree with you could easily be, and usually are, nicer than you, wiser than you, don't fly off the handle as much as you do, are more disciplined than you are. They're kinder. Any of you have a neighbor who's not a Christian but is one of the kindest people you ever met? I've met many of those people. Every other system of thought outside the gospel leads you to believe that you'll be better than the people who don't believe the things that you believe. But the gospel says if you believe the gospel, you're more likely to see other people who don't believe the gospel are better than you. In other words, the gospel humbles you before the people who don't agree with you. Truly humbles you. And I don't know any other system that would do that. What would it look like for Redemption Church to actually believe this gospel in an election year? We'd have to lay down a lot of our self-righteousness. We'll put down a lot of our fences and actually say, we are following Jesus. And that's where we're going, to be a non-anxious presence, a people who are totally dependent on Jesus and his righteousness and not building our own. So, Father, help us to embody this story to see the revolutionary teaching of Jesus of making all the things that we eat and do clean, but what actually is defilement is our hearts. And so, God, I pray that you will help us not to be the religious elite, the moralists, to look down on others, but to be people who genuinely love others and see that we're no better than them. It's just that Jesus is better, and we put our trust in him. So God, make us this gospel people, we pray, for the sake of your glory and your kingdom here. May it be on earth, uh, on earth as it is in heaven right here in Chesapeake. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.